0: You are now listening to the March 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and divine intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings.
1: Hello Heart and Soul listeners, this is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we will share the story of Jotham, the 11th king of Judah. We find his record in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 32 to 38, and 2 Chronicles chapter 27. Jotham was the son of Uzziah, the 10th king of Judah. As we shared three weeks ago, Uzziah was a king who did right in the sight of God. He experienced prosperity when he sought God. However, after he became powerful, his pride got to his head. Rather than humbling himself before God, he foolishly thought he could perform priestly duties to make himself look more impressive before his people. He was then struck with leprosy and was excluded from the temple of the Lord to the day he died amaziah jotham's grandfather was also a king who did right in the sight of the lord during the time of his reign he repented at god's word and turned back to god when he made mistakes he carried out god's commands as stipulated in the laws however as he grew old amaziah became proud of himself and began to act against god's word Jotham's father Uzziah and grandfather Amaziah were kings who did right in the sight of God when they were young, but then they fell short toward the end of their lives. They died in their pride, alienated from God in the end. Jotham started to reign over the nation in his father Uzziah's place when his father got sick. Uzziah ignored the law and became a leper. Jotham maintained the palace and reigned over the people of Judah for eight years until his father's death. Jotham was inaugurated as the 11th king of Judah. The Bible records that he reigned over Judah for 16 years from Jerusalem. This period includes the eight years he reigned over the nation in his father Uzziah's place. The Bible tells us that Jotham did right in the sight of God, much as his father Uzziah had done during his early years. 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verses 3-5 to 5, record how strong Judah was during the time of Jotham's reign. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah, and he built fortresses and towers On the wooded hills. He fought also with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed over them so that the Ammonites gave him, during that year, one hundred talents of silver, ten thousand cores of wheat, and ten thousand of barley. The Ammonites also paid him this amount in the second and in the third year. Jotham built the upper gates of the house of the Lord. Theologians presume that these were double doors called Lion's Gate, located northeast from the temple in Jerusalem, facing the territory of Benjamin. Jotham also raised the wall of Ophel extensively, built cities in the hill country of Judah, and erected fortresses and towers. Judah was strong during the time of his father Uzziah, but Jotham made it even stronger beyond what his father had accomplished. During the time of Jotham's father Uzziah, the Ammonites living east of the Jordan River paid tribute to Judah. As they grew larger, the Ammonites rebelled against Judah and the two countries went to war against each other. With God's help, Jotham was victorious. From this conflict, Jotham imposed on Ammon a higher tribute As a punishment, the Bible records that the total amount was 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 core of barley. One talent of silver is about 75 pounds in weight, so 100 talents of silver is about 7,500 pounds or 3.75 tons. Also, one core is about 70 gallons in volume. So 10,000 cores of wheat is 700,000 gallons and 10,000 cores of barley is another 700,000 gallons, totaling 1.4 million gallons. The Bible records that the Ammonites continued to pay Jotham the same amount in the second and in the third year before Judah was attacked by the Arameans and Israelites. 2nd Chronicles chapter 27 verse 6 tells us clearly that the reason Jotham was able to become so strong was because he walked in the righteous path. Jotham did right in the sight of the Lord, and he experienced unequivocally God's divine intervention and in his power. However, even though he did right in the sight of God and experienced God's might, Jotham did not remove those high places, and he still allowed people to sacrifice and burn incense there. He did not worship idols himself, but Jotham did not seem to realize what a great sin it was to leave such places that promoted idol worshipping. In particular, Jotham did not prevent his son Ahaz from doing evil in the sight of God During the four years, he and his son were ruling over Judah together. The Bible does not record clearly why Jotham decided to rule over Judah together with his son Ahaz during the last four years of his life. From what is recorded in the Bible, we know Jotham reigned over Judah with his father for eight years, and he was the sole ruler for four years. After that, He ruled over Judah jointly with his son Ahaz. Jotham's son Ahaz was different from his father Jotham. While his father tried to walk in the path of the Lord, Ahaz showed no interest in that at all. Ahaz did not act righteous in the sight of the Lord God and walked in the ways of previous kings that did evil before the Lord. Ahaz even took one step further in being evil he acted out abominable practices of the pagan nations God had driven out. We had mentioned that Jotham did not stop people from worshipping idols in high places. Jotham did not stop his son Ahaz from importing detestable gods of other nations and worshipping them. Because of this, God sent Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, to strike against Judah. God wanted Judah to realize their sin and turn back to him. Jotham witnessed his nation getting stronger under God's care. He did his best not to fall from God's grace. He watched himself and kept his faith. He learned from seeing how his father Uzziah and his grandfather Amaziah experienced God, but still became proud of themselves and ended up doing evil in the end. It appears, however, Jotham was too intent on saving his own soul and fell short on helping to save the souls of his people. He neglected to put on the same desire to stay on the righteous path before God for his people. He did not stop his people from idol worshiping in high places. He did not teach his son how to be right before God. Jotham committed the sin of omission, not leading his people and not teaching his son to be right before God. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of Kings next time. Have a blessed week.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Priest King. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
2: The first two chapters of 1 Samuel begin with the Ark of the Covenant, which had the mercy seat on top where God's people were said to meet with God. And that was at Shiloh. And there we had a failed priest. And this failed priest, in this Ark of the Covenant, they were in Shiloh. Now the failure of Eli, that priest that failed, was also met with God's promise. He promised in 1 Samuel 2.35, saying, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. You'll remember that in 1 Samuel 8, Israel, they had rejected judges, and they wanted a king like the nations. And so in 1 Samuel eight fifteen, we were told that what they desired was a king who would bring them justice internally. And also one who would save them. They would, he would go out and fight their enemies for him so that both those external relationships and internal relationships would be brought peace or shalom through this king. And Israel longed for peace from their enemies outside. They longed for peace with their brothers inside. In fact, if you look at the history of Israel, you'll see that that's a lot of their problems. Israel thought to tall Saul was the king that they desired, but he quickly failed. You'll remember that he sinned against God. And then God, in response, took his spirit from Saul, and he gave it to David, anointing David, who was a shepherd amongst sheep, to be raised up to be his king, God's king, or Messiah, that word that we find translated in the New Testament, Christ. And so this man would be God's Christ. So now we have, in the beginning chapters of 1 Samuel, a failed priest, and a failed king, but a promise of a future priest and a future king whom God would build a sure house for. Well, the rest of 2 Samuel unfolds, really, the if you look at it in 1 Samuel all the way up to 11, or to 2 Samuel 11, we find that David is looking like an absolute hero. He looks like he is the answer to all of these failures, I mean, he established justice in the land as a righteous king. He even uh, finds that God makes an eternal covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7, promising to give his offspring an eternal throne over his kingdom. I mean, David looks like he is the man. He's the answer. But the wheels come off in 2 Samuel 11, don't they? And you'll remember that there, uh, David doesn't look like an extraordinary king anymore. He looks like an extraordinary sinner. He actually commits adultery with Bathsheba and then kills her husband Uriah, a righteous man, to cover up his sin. And, And if you read from 11 to 20, what we find is an unfolding of all of the horrible consequences of the sin of David. And so all of a sudden, this man that looked like the answer to the failures of leadership looks like he is repeating the cycle. And so you're wondering about that promise that God made to David. Is he going to keep his promises because David, too, has failed? Well, what's interesting is, when you come to the end of the book of 2 Samuel, you have these chapters, beginning in chapter 21, that that almost look like they're out of place, and they're not necessarily chronological. I mean, you'll remember that 22 has taken what seems to be an episode in the middle of David's life, a good time, whenever he is rescued from Saul. And then chapter 23, we find the last words of David, where David is basically saying, here are my last words after all of these horrible things that you just read about have taken place, including the good things, but the bad things too. And you'll remember that in chapter 23, even after his life is shown to be a hot mess due to his horrific sins, he still trusts that God will keep his promise Of a future Messiah that will bring blessings to God's people. You kind of wish the book just ended in chapter 23, but it doesn't. And those first words of chapter 24, they really are ominous words. You remember, it begins with God's anger being kindled again against Israel. And David seems to be in the midst of this as he calls for a census. Because now he's putting his confidence in the swords of the men of Israel. You remember in chapter 17, when he was fighting Goliath, he refused Saul's sword because he said, "Uh, God, I am here to come in his power. I don't win with sword and spear, but in the power of the Lord. And yet at the end, he's counting up his swords. When he was younger, he refused them. Now he counts them. And God sends a wrath of a plague on his people for this census. But don't miss the main point of this last story that we're going to see here today. And it's this. Taking notes, write this down. The God of mercy meets with his people at the mercy seat where his king priest intercedes for his people. The God of mercy meets with his people at the mercy seat where his king priest intercedes for his people. Now, 2 Samuel 24, uh, this is actually... For all the horror that it might bring on as you see the angel of Yahweh coming and, and slaying 70,000 people because of the sins of Israel, because of the horrific scene, you might think this is a, a bad story, solely a bad story. But this story, I believe, is full of good news, and that's what we're going to see today. So our first point is this. David confesses again in verse 17. He confesses again. Now, David's first confession in, ver- in chapter, or verse 10 was followed, you'll remember, by the prophet Gad showing up. And it climaxes the scene in God showing mercy as the angel of Yahweh is approaching Jerusalem. He has been slaying people from Dan to Beersheba, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And it's at that moment that God cries out, it is enough, and his mercy is displayed. Well, verses 17 to 25 seem to repeat this pattern. In fact, I think it's on purpose that the pattern's repeated, that there is a confession and then an action in Gad showing up, because I believe that what we find here is actually a replay of the same event from a human perspective. You know, the most important thing in this chapter is the mercy of God being highlighted. But now we're ready to see what was happening in real time with David. It kind of looks like a flashback of the moment that we read about leading up to verse 16, but from the perspective of King David. Now, catch what verse 17 says. Look there with me again. Here's what he says He says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please, Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Let's not forget this chapter launches with God and his anger being kindled against Israel for their sins. And yet again, you notice here that David looks like the good shepherd offering to lay down his life, his life and the life of his fathers for his sheep. Now, God's mercy preceded David's confession here. But David's mercy reflects the heart of God for his people. And David, he looks so much like Moses interceding for Israel in Exodus chapter 32 when God's anger threatened to wipe out all of Israel because when he came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, they had already broken the first two. They were worshiping that cow. See, David's mercy is here reflecting the heart of God, but it also, he looks a lot like the intercession of Moses when he is putting himself and his life between God and his people. He's saying, "Let me rescue them from your just wrath." David uniquely asks God here to strike him in his father's house if it would push back the wrath that God rightly had on Israel. See, David understands that God's justice is perfect. He doesn't say that God's justice should not be met. What he says, though, is my great love for them wants to push back that justice and absorb it myself. And so he begs God to show mercy to them. Notice God's response in verse 18, though. Second, the prophet tells David to build an altar where God showed mercy. He tells David to build an altar where God showed mercy in verse 18. Now, you'll remember that David's first confession of sin was followed by Gad bringing the word of wrath. Like, choose one of three options. How do you want to do this? There's going to be a judgment that comes. And of course, David says, just not, don't leave me in the hands of men like you choose because your mercy is great. And so he says, I'm going to send a plague. In this second confession in verse 17, it's followed by Gad showing up again, but this time he brings a word of mercy. And it's tied to David building this altar. Uh, look with me again at verse eighteen at what he says. It says this: and Gad came that day to David, and he said to him, "Go up, raise an altar to the Lord, to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite." These last verses of the end of Second Samuel spend a lot of time focusing on this threshing floor of Arana. In fact, you might be reading these verses. And if you're thinking about the good way to end a story, you might think, why does he spend so much time on this piece of real estate? I mean, what's the big deal? Like, real estate isn't that exciting. Maybe you remember in 2 Samuel 5, a connected story, David took Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and it became the city of David. And then the first thing he does in chapter 6 is he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion. Of course, it was a little bit difficult to get it there, but he got it there. And that would be the city of David, but also the city of God, where God dwelt with God's king. See, David ushered in this Ark of the Covenant. But here, Arana seems to be a wealthy Jebusite of those Jebusites that were living on mount zion before david took it but he's still there and he he looks like he's not an enemy he's he's doing well he's wealthy he still has land on zion and he remained in jerusalem through all that has happened since then and so god commanded david to build an altar on arana's land now the value of this real estate it isn't just because it's on a mountain right? We know that mountain real estate's good. It goes for a high price, especially here in the valley. But you know what they say about the value of real estate? Value really is about location, location, location. And the location is important for other reasons. Uh, let me give you just three factors that make this location very interesting. First, it's the place where God is presently displaying his mercy. You remember how this event went down back in verse 16? Uh, God has killed 70,000 Israelites. The angel of, the, of Yahweh, he's drawing near to Jerusalem, and it's at this threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite that it appears that God screams out, It is enough, causing the angel to stand down. Now, here's where I think Chronicles can help us it gives us a little bit of a window into the purpose, the meaning, the significance of this place. Because, second, it's also the place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. Well, Chronicles 2 Chronicles 3 1 to 5 tells us you need to look back there because that that story has an impact on this place see we find that this threshing floor is on Mount Moriah it's the same mountain where God called Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice before the angel of the Lord came and it was there that the angel of the Lord prevented Abraham from offering up Isaac as a sacrifice by providing a ram as a substitute for him well, hold on, it gets better. Those are two pretty significant events. But third, this is also, we are told in 2 Chronicles 3, the place where in the future Solomon will build the temple that houses the Ark of the Covenant, where priests would offer sacrifices daily and annually on the Day of Atonement on behalf of the people of God. Now, just think about that. God showed mercy in the past to Abraham's son Isaac and to Abraham there. He is presently showing mercy to David and Israel on this spot. And in the future, the temple will be built there with the Ark of the Covenant at the center of its worship, with its mercy seat in the middle of the life of the people of God where God meets with his people. Of course, you know that that lid of the covenant was considered to be the footstool of God's throne. It is a place that is considered to be a mercy seat, where God's people meet with God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, you'll remember there were sacrifices uniquely offered there where the, the priest would go once a day behind this curtain, and he would offer these sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Why? Because we have a picture on this mercy seat that stood at the center of Israel's worship and life that said that there is mercy to be had between God and his people, but there's always this blood sacrifice and this curtain that are coming between. And why did they have to offer sacrifices to come before their God? Well, Leviticus 17 11 uh, gives us, uh, I think, a picture of this. Um, That's where some of you might need to think about the way that you're ordering your steak when you go out for a steak. If you do that kind of thing, sorry vegetarians, you should do that. But if you don't, when you go for a steak, you know, you want to make sure you don't get it too rare, right? What's too rare? Well, if it, you know, moves when you poke it, that's probably too rare. But the reason that you don't want to do that is because you can't eat meat, what, with the blood still in it. Now, what he means by that is, you know, we're not eating live animals, uh, probably something that was done in, in other pagan cultic uh, practices. But here we find in Leviticus 17, 11, us being told this. He says, don't eat meat with the blood still in it, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, David asked God to strike him instead of the people as a good shepherd. But God here calls for an altar where sacrifices would be made to satisfy God's just wrath for his people. Now, Hebrews 9.22 goes on to say this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without blood there is no forgiveness no mercy, no reconciliation, no restoration, no atonement without the blood. I think one thing that God wants his people to know is that forgiveness is actually costly. Sin against God is costly. We don't want to think about the largesse of God's mercy in such a way that we put that on sin and say therefore sin is not a big deal but that's not the way that God speaks about it or the Bible speaks about it in fact that it requires blood tells us that it is something that is very costly that's why God tells David to build an altar so that he might find the mercy of God we're all familiar with the Roman road to salvation right uh, Romans 3 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God now this is good theology, we are all sinners. But I think that sometimes what we can do is we can have some good theology but take it in some weird directions that are not healthy. You know, Every human left to themselves is a sinner by nature and by choice. So we are all sinners but we know how our hearts, even Christian hearts can actually bend and misuse really beautiful scriptures that are really important to us. Like the reality of who we are outside of Christ, that we're all sinners. You know, sometimes you hear people say, we're all sinners and all. And taken one way, that's really biblical, right? We are all sinners, very true. But I think that there is another way that people can use that, that it's not biblical. They spin it in a little bit different angle. Some of of those who you've heard talk this way, you've heard people say, you know, we're all sinners and all. And by that, they use this line to actually justify themselves. They mean to presume on the mercy of God. So, for instance, you might have some people, when they say that, presume on the mercy of God in a number of different ways. They mean something like, you know, thinking sin isn't a big deal, is how I understand that. I don't think sin is a big deal because we are all sinners. Or it could be that, like, we're all sin. I mean, sin's everywhere. It's like all we know. Or it could be, you're not better than me. We're all sinners and all. Or, Who are you to judge me? We're all sinners. Or who am I to meddle in the affairs of another self-professing Christian entrenched in sin because we are all sinners? Or how can any of us have real hope with our sins given there is so much sin in the world? You've seen Fox News. There's no hope. There, There are all kinds of ways that we can take this and spin it in the wrong way. And maybe you don't say this out loud. But it is a small voice in your heart this morning that perhaps even in this moment is fighting to justify a dating relationship that's mired in sexual sin. Or a lingering bitterness against your spouse that's okay. Or cheating on a test at school. I mean, everybody else is doing it. We all sin and all. And when guilt sets in, you think, you know, we're all sinners and all, so it must be okay. Don't miss this. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of the gospel, that sin's just okay. See, the good news isn't that we're all sinners and all. God is good. Let's go home. No, God's incredible mercy should not mute or silence our sense of the gravity of our sins. It should lead us to faith in a merciful God, confessing our sins, turning from our sins, running and worshiping God all the way. See, that's why I think the end of Samuel spends so much time on this real estate deal. He says it matters how sinners approach a holy God. It matters where they do it, and they need to know that the story that they are stepping into, this mercy, it's not about them. It's about something that preceded them in Abraham that is happening now and that is going to be working itself into the future through the people of Israel and finally into, guess what? Us who are here today hearing the gospel preached. This is a big thing that God is doing on this piece of real estate. Third, David purchases the real estate for the temple Fair and square. David purchased the real estate for the temple fair and square. Now, as the angel of the Lord is striking down the Israelites, it might seem like a strange time for a real estate deal. Don't forget where we're at. And and so in the midst of this, like, terror is breaking out. David is doing what? I love this picture. He's obeying God's voice. Maybe that's something you just need to be reminded of today. The world might seem like chaos. Here's what you're called to do today. Be faithful. What if everything gets better tomorrow? What are you called to do? Be faithful. And so here he is obeying the voice of God in verses 19 to 24. And look what it says. Here's what God's word says. So David went up at Gad's word and as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has... My lord the king, come to his servant. And David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build your altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. And all this, O king Arana, gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, The Lord your God accepts you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I love the picture here again of David's immediate obedience. David went up at God's word. As the word of the Lord commanded. This is the king at his best, obeying his God. This is humanity at its best, as we are obeying the voice of God, our creator. Of course, this is also what the love of God looks like. You'll remember in 1 John, we're told those who love God obey his commandments. So if you're not a real estate agent, you might be wondering this morning, why so much time is given to this real estate deal? And why didn't David take Arana's offer to give him the land for free? Did you notice that? He says, I'll I'll give you all the land. I'll even give you the, the stuff for the sacrifice. You don't need to worry about yourself about any of the details. I'll make it easy for you. Easy worship. And why didn't he take him up on that offer? Well, commentator Robert Bergen explains it this way. He says, in purchasing the land from Arana and then utilizing it for the sacrifice to the Lord... David was apparently following Torah guidelines regarding the dedication of land to the Lord, as we find in Leviticus 27. And when he did this, the land became permanently holy and was set aside in perpetuity for priestly use, a situation completely consistent with the site's subsequent use for the temple of the Lord. Now, four quick things we find here about this place, this parcel of land that David has is bought and purchased for long-term use, for priestly use. First, the altar would be built on the exact spot, don't forget this, of where God chose to display his mercy on the threshing floor back in verse 16. It was there that when he, he saw the angel coming near in that place in Jerusalem, he said, it is enough. Second, sacrifices would be offered on this altar. It was an altar for Sacrifices. Third, David's obedient sacrifice would avert the sin-induced plague from the people. Fourth, David had to purchase the land at a fair price to dedicate that land for priestly use. See, David purchased the land that would be used for sacrifices that would be made daily and annually for the priesthood of Israel. But take note of how the book of Samuel ends with King David offering up sacrifices like a priest would do in verse 25. Here's what it says. We find forth fourth that David acts as a priest king. Not just a king, but a priest king. And this is what it says. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered ber- offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. As we think about this, let me begin with just a quote to clarify as we move forward. Uh, John Woodridge says this in his commentary. I found it helpful. He makes this clarification. He says this. He says, The subtle but important point in these verses is that while the altar and the sacrifices were no doubt very important, even necessary, the account has been framed in such a way that excludes the idea that the sacrifices caused the plague to stop. The Lord did that at the appointed time text wants to just show that God is sovereign over these events. In other words, God didn't need sacrifices as much as the people needed them to remind them of their sins. Now, David offers burnt offerings. You'll find that explained in Leviticus 1. Burnt offerings, uh, they were an offering that was offered to atone for human sin in such a way that you propitiated the wrath of God. Just a big word for absorbing or assuaging or taking on God's wrath that you deserved. He took it in full. It's not that it just disappeared. It's that he took it. And he did that so that we could be atoned with God. We could have right relationship with God. Be made it one with him. Are these people in Israel. We also notice the peace offerings in Leviticus 3 that he's offered here. Uh, They celebrate peace with God. Shalom. That comes along with all of those blessings that flow from having peace with God. You'll notice that Samuel begins with the pursuit of a leader who would save Israel from their enemies, from themselves bringing justice, but also the wrath of God. See, Jesus would later come to fulfill what this altar and the sacrificial system that it points to only foreshadowed. We need a, a greater priest and a greater king. And I think Samuel wants us to see that. We, we need one who is greater, who would lay down his life as the good shepherd to draw his people near to God with his once-for-all sacrifice. It's hard to miss how David points to Jesus Christ here at the end of Samuel. Jesus, he came with a new and a better covenant and laid down his life for his people to defeat sin, death, and the devil, and also to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved once and for all. So Hebrews ten eleven to 12 says it this way. Thinking of the priestly system. And every priest stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. Sacrifice after sacrifice. And yet God's anger has not been fully satisfied. Sacrifice after sacrifice. And God's people Are still sin sick. They still have not been healed from their sin nature. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. God's perfect justice and mercy meet at the cross where he willingly laid down his life, his perfectly obedient life for sinners and was raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of God, where he sits even now. The modern equivalent of he sat down is he dropped the mic, right? Like he's done, like I'm out. Like I can't do any better, I can't do anything else that's gonna impress you. I have done it fully at the cross. He has ascended to sit next to the Father. I'm just wondering this morning, as we've been talking about the mercy of God, and last week we've been talking about the mercy of God, we continue to talk about the mercy of God, and yet in all of that, has your heart, have you found it, impenetrable to being encouraged by the heart of God for the people of God. Are you not stirred by the fact that God's heart is a heart of mercy for you, even at the cost of his very own Son? You know, we were children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2. When Paul says in verses 4 to 5, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he Loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The Messiah. It is by grace that you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, if you've you grown cold in your thoughts of the mercy of God, do you not realize where you were? We were enemies of God destined for wrath. And yet the gospel says that you are no longer an enemy of God, but a child of God. He's not trying to protect the children from you anymore. <laughs> He's trying to protect you from the enemies. He is no longer against you. His full force is not For you in his wrath, it is actually for you in mercy. So that the higher that his wrath for sinners could be raised, his mercy was raised all the more for you. I don't hear warmth, gospel warmth over the mercy of God. Jesus, he is good to his people, he is good for his people. And those who have experienced mercy, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. I would also say blessed are the merciful because they have received mercy. And Christian, maybe your heart has grown cold towards God's mercy because you've lost sight of Jesus' work, hear me, for you right now. Maybe when you think about the gospel, and this is really easy to do, you get sort of the gospel locked and loaded, you know, God, man, Christ response. I know what God has done in justifying me, but I have lost sight of the fact that that same Christ is at work now in my life. That that same mercy that was displayed at the cross is always operative for me. And the book of First John has some encouraging Thoughts about the nature of what Jesus is doing for us now. Did you know that Jesus is your greater priest, king, and advocate? Do you know what that means? Yes, he offered the perfect sacrifice, is the perfect intercessor and priest for us. But he is still acting for us. Hebrews describes Christ as our intercessor right now. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he, being Jesus, is able to save us and you To the uttermost. Who is that? Those who draw near to God through Christ. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me ask you this. When is always? When is not always? Never. Always lives to make intercession for you. I love Gentle and Lowly by Dane Artland. He writes of this verse saying this. Intercession is that moment-by-moment application of God's atoning work, of Christ's atoning work for you. See, the Son's intercession, it does not reflect the coolness of the Father. Did you see how God was acting when He it was His mercy and caused mercy for us, even before His King David? See, the Son's intercession, it does not reflect the coolness of the Father, but the sheer warmth of the Son. See, Christ does not intercede because the Father's heart is tepid to toward us. But because the son's heart is also full toward us. But the father's own deepest delight is to say yes to the son's pleading on our behalf. Did you know that that's the posture of the father towards those who are in the son? That he is joyfully looking to help his saints. Just think about that. Jesus, he always lives right now. Jesus constantly appeals to the Father for us based on his atoning life, death, resurrection, ascension, where he now, dropped the mic, is sitting next to the Father. And it's such that we are so right with God in Christ that we have access to the Father's throne as adopted children. Jesus constantly appeals the Father for us. While you sleep tonight, Jesus is interceding for you. When you are at work, not thinking about Jesus, Jesus is interceding for you. When you're playing, while you're playing video games, Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is always interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you even when you are not interceding for yourself. And he does that always. But what if you sin? Where is Jesus in that moment? Do we just say we're all sinners and all? Well, no. I mean, Jesus is, he's interceding, we're good. No, First John actually says, then we look to Jesus as our advocate, right? First John 2, 1. There he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate from, for us before the Father. Now, think about this. If anyone does sin, speaking to a moment in time when you sin, in this occasion that you sin, then in that moment, you have an advocate in Christ. Now, this word for advocate, super interesting. It's word for uh, paraclete. You find it in like John 17, uh, speaking of the helper. But it's a word that really uh, is rich in the original and hard to get at in the English. But when you sin, what you find here is that Jesus also is acting as this advocate or paraclete or helper, someone who so identifies you that he actually takes your cause on as if it was his own. So when the believer sins, we have Jesus advocating for us. Jesus, when you sin, it might feel like he has what? Removed himself from the situation. And you might think that you're gonna remove yourself from Jesus because you know it's awkward, And so I'm not gonna pray right now because it feels super weird because who would wanna hang out with me? He's died for my sins, I just sinned again. I'm a failure and so I'm sure that he just would rather me go away and I'm gonna go away. But in that moment, 1 John 2 says no. In that moment, it's not that Jesus has drawn away, it's that Jesus has stepped up in a unique way for you. He has become your advocate. He is fighting for you, your case, pleading your causes as they are his own. And what a better advocate he is than David. He's a better advocate than David. David's life not worthy to swage the wrath of God for us. Jesus' was. He's a better advocate for you than you are for yourself. You know, Satan accuses you and tempts you to despair. And Jesus advocates his works on your behalf, for your account. You know, we love to advocate for ourselves, right? Wasn't my fault. Like, did you see, like, the circumstances? I mean, this is from the beginning. You remember Adam, right? It's not my fault, God. It's that woman you gave me. What is that? It's blame shifting. It wasn't me. It's self-justifying. It's self-advocating. He's he's advocating as a sinner before a holy God saying, it's not my fault, the God who knows all things, who sees his very heart. You might say, that seems so dumb. But don't we do that? You know, I had special conditions. We're all sinners in all God. Jesus is the only advocate who can advocate for us with a 100% success rate. Don't miss this. When you fail, Satan says you're done. But when you fail in sin, Jesus' advocacy on your behalf, it rises higher. He doesn't leave or forsake you. He fights your case for you as his own body. He is our priest king who brings us to God. And he is our advocate who advocates for us in our sins. See, Jesus, he didn't just open the way to God. He is the one who by moment by moment keeps it going. I love what John Bunyan said in the works of Christ as advocate, he, he showed the difference between advocate and and priest. And, and here's the way that he shows these differences. He, he writes this, because both are important. He says, Christ as priest goes before, and Christ as advocate comes after. Christ as a priest continually intercedes. Christ as an advocate, in case of great transgressions, pleads. Christ as a priest has... Need to act always, but Christ is advocate sometimes only. Christ as a priest acts in times of peace, but Christ is advocate in times of royals, turmoils, and sharp contentions. Wherefore, Christ as advocate is, as I may call him, a reserve. And his time is then to arise, to stand up and plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin that of late they have fallen into. Christian, do you see the nature of this priest king and this advocate, this intercessor who is for you? He's for us even more than for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that we do have this great priest king. Father David only pointed us towards the greater one who was to come. All of the kings that followed, all of the priests that would come after, Father, none of them were able to satisfy your wrath, but your son, Jesus Christ, has done that in full for us. And so, Father, we pray this morning that if there are those who are listening who are not believers, that they would put their faith in Jesus, that they would become children of God, no longer enemies of God. Father, if there are those here who are Christians, and Lord, their hearts have grown cold towards you, towards your mercy, pray that today they've been made freshly aware of the resources that are constantly available to them. And to your work constantly for them, even when they don't see it. And Father, for those of us, all of us, who have put our faith in Christ, Father, we ask that you would give us a renewed and fresh delight in the fact that your Son forever lives to intercede for us. And Father, that when we do sin, that he is there to advocate for, for us. Lord, we ask that you do all these things for the glory of your great name. And in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our great priest, King, that we do pray. Amen.
3: Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now.
0: The following program is called Divine Intervention.
4: Have you heard the news? There is news that the Israelites have entered across the Jordan River in front of us. There is rumor that they have sent people to spy this place and that this land of Canaan will be in ruins soon. Ah, everybody in the land of Canaan knows that rumor. I'm anxious every day and it's making me crazy. The Jehovah God those people serve divided the sea so the people could cross. Also, he makes his people victorious in battle. I'm sure you heard what he did to the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. Yes, when I heard that rumor, I was shocked. But is this true? He brought down meat and white bread like snow from heaven. Doesn't it seem like a myth? Yes, I did hear that rumor. How could such a thing happen? I thought it was a made-up story too. Anyway... It's obvious that they will soon invade this land of Canaan. Are we well prepared for battle? What are we supposed to do? There is nowhere to escape. Yes, I know. I can't sleep well these days because my mind is not at ease. However, it won't be easy for them since this city of Jericho is sturdy. Also, there are many clans in Canaan. If we form a united front, we will be able to win. Ah, I heard that Jehovah God helped them in battle. The city of Jericho won't be a big problem for them. Shh, don't say that. If you say the wrong thing, you might get captured. All the men who entered the house of the prostitute Rahab talked about one thing. It was the rumor that Israel would soon invade the land of Canaan. As Rahab heard the men talk, she tried hard to calm her rapidly beating heart. She tried to be calm, but her face was reddened and her legs were shaking. It was because on Rahab's roof, she had two spies who were lying under a pile of flax. Recently, Rahab heard and knew about Jehovah God of Israel. From long ago, when Rahab was young, she often heard legends about the Israelites from the men staying at her place she heard about how the God they believed in freed them from Egypt, how they crossed the Red Sea, and how he led them in the harsh desert life. As she heard more and more about Jehovah, she couldn't help comparing him to the gods the Canaan people believed in. The clans of Canaan served many gods. They served numerous gods such as El, Baal, Asherah, Anat, Mot, Dagon, Moloch, Ashtoreth, Baal of Peor, Chemosh, and more. Rahab turned away from the barbaric and immoral gods of Canaan, whose people set their children on fire and offered them as sacrifices. Instead, Rahab was drawn towards Jehovah God, whom the Israelites served. She began to believe that he was the true God. Israel believed that people must only serve one God, and Jehovah was the true God. Rahab began to have serious concerns regarding Jehovah God. One day, she heard news that Israel was coming towards the land of Canaan. Rahab felt like God was approaching her. Now she had to make a decision. Without hesitation, Rahab decided to discard the custom of all the gods of Canaan and believe in Jehovah God of Israel. Rahab confessed in her heart that the God of Israel was the only God in heaven and earth whom a weak person like her could depend on. As days passed, Rahab's faith towards God was growing. She loved and waited for Jehovah God. Rahab didn't know the future, but the news that one day Israel would attack Canaan was not fearful but good news to her. Dear Listeners, When the Canaan woman Rahab became faithful to the God of Israel, do you know what kind of blessing God gave her? In the book of Matthew, Rahab appears in Jesus' genealogy as the mother of Boaz and David's ancestor. Not only was she a Canaan foreigner, but a prostitute who had a lowly status. Nevertheless, God placed her in Jesus' genealogy. This was God's extraordinary grace. It may seem inappropriate that the story of one foreign woman was recorded in the early part of the book of Joshua, which recorded the victory of the Canaan conquest. But God had a clear intention of including the story of the prostitute Rahab. I realize that, as with the other stories that appear in the history of salvation, There is a coincidence-like inevitability hidden in Rahab's story. The two spies did not coincidentally go into Rahab's house. This was an encounter under God's sovereign's guidance and control. The spies had to go inside Rahab's house. In the land of Canaan, where judgment was coming, a small light was flickering. That light was the face of Rahab. How can God neglect and turn off this light? Rahab's faith was pure, passionate, and strong. Rahab's faith might have been stronger than the chosen, highly esteemed women of Israel. I thought a woman who would be an ancestor of Christ should obviously be an Israelite. An Israelite woman would have known God longer, but more than that, she was a chosen person. Of course she should receive God's favor. However, God wrote a drama of reversal. She was a foreigner whom Israel despised so much. In addition, a Canaan prostitute. God placed his lowly life in Jesus' genealogy. There were times when I often thought God favored only the Israelites. Instead, that was my misunderstanding of God's grace. Israel could have reached Canaan in 40 days, but God made them wander for 40 years. God trained Israel in the wilderness so they wouldn't rely on their own strength and become prideful. These 40 years was also a time of opportunity that God gave to the foreign nations. Through Israel, it was a time for God to let Himself known and show who He is to all the nations. As time passed, News spread and all the clans in the land of Canaan knew about Jehovah of Israel. The 40 years of life in the wilderness could have been the cost Israel had to pay for their calling as chosen people, and it could have been a time of opportunity for the foreign nations to return to Jehovah. The time of opportunity for them to leave all the gods of the world and return to Jehovah God. It was a time of opportunity, like Rahab had to listen with her heart and resolve with fate. Forty years, not forty days, was more than enough time to turn one's heart around. That's right. God gave Israel and the foreign nations the same opportunity. God equally loved and had concern for Israel and the foreign nations. Could this perhaps have been God's intention of recording the incident of Rahab before the conquest of Canaan? Believing God for a long time and having had knowledge of all there is to know from all the experience of faith brought about a veteran spiritual life for me. Therefore, I should obviously get respect and be treated like a spiritual adult. I reflected upon myself to see if my heart had become proud. Do I inwardly judge the people who don't know God? Have I become a prideful person who has developed spiritual superiority? I have forgotten that like Rahab, I had a lowly life and had to die. Through Rahab, God told me to go back again to my original humble position. On that day of judgment upon the land of Canaan, Rahab was one person who turned on the bright light of faith in the land of darkness. On that day, I hope we also would shine our true light of faith while we wait and love Jehovah God with overflowing joy. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. So the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with the plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and He will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, Israel will be third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, Assyria my handiwork and Israel my inheritance. Hallelujah. Amen.
3: He sought me, weary and sick with sin, And on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again, While angels in his presence sang, Until the courts of heaven rang. Oh, the love that sought me, oh, the love that brought me, Grace that brought me to the fold, Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. He pointed to the nail prints, For me his blood was shed, A mocking crown so thorny was placed upon his head, I wondered what he saw in me to suffer such deep agony. Oh, the love that sought me, oh, the love that bought me, oh, the grace that brought me to the full Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the love that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold.